0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them.
1: Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that
2: we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
1: Think Health on 2 ser 107.3.
3: Hello and welcome to Think Health, Ellen lee with you. Today... And they are not sure that they will be settled in Australia, for example, in my project, or they will be deported to their country of origin. So as you can see that it's a very big stress for them that may influence their health condition. The health differences
2: between refugees and asylum seekers. Also on
4: the show... What we have now, though, is we have a variety of people who are already registered by boards. So the nurses are already registered, the physios, the radiographers, um, doctors, nurses. So do they need then dual registration?
2: The need for registration among health practitioners who use ultrasounds. You would be forgiven for thinking rheumatic heart disease is just another illness modern medicine has eradicated, given we almost never hear about it. For most of the population, rheumatic heart disease, or RHD, is extremely rare. However, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have one of the highest rates of RHD in the world.
1: Ah. What disease starts as a sore throat in children and ends with open heart surgery, heart failure, stroke and premature death?
3: If we had a similar outbreak of measles or meningitis or even Ebola around the world, that would make the headlines in the news. Whilst this is not something that the general public is aware
2: this is an excerpt from the documentary Take Heart, released earlier this year to raise awareness about rheumatic heart disease. You just heard that RHD has some pretty devastating outcomes, like heart disease and stroke. But to better understand rheumatic heart disease, you need to understand rheumatic fever first. People get rheumatic fever following an infection caused by Group A streptococcal bacteria. You may have heard the term strep throat before. Put simply, if you have a throat infection and it doesn't get treated, it can lead to rheumatic fever. In trying to fight this strep bacterium, your body mounts an immune attack. This results in inflammation in other parts of the body, such as the joints, the brain and the heart. If you keep getting these throat infections and your body keeps mounting these immune responses, the repeated inflammation can damage the heart permanently. This is rheumatic heart disease. And it means your heart valves struggle to open and shut properly to pump blood around your body, leading to those devastating outcomes you heard earlier. Children are most at risk of developing rheumatic fever, and by extension, rheumatic heart disease. It's found almost exclusively in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations in northern and central Australia, and it is 100% preventable. So, rheumatic heart
5: disease had been eliminated from most of Australia in the 1990s, Because it's traditionally been a disease which is found amongst people with, um, coming from lower socioeconomic incomes, uh, those who are disadvantaged.
2: This is Professor Liz Sullivan, Assistant Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University of Technology Sydney.
5: And a professor of public health.
2: The main reason why this disease is so prevalent among Aboriginal populations is because of overcrowded housing. What in particular is it about overcrowding that makes this disease more prevalent? It historically has been
5: a disease of overcrowding of housing and housing is a, is a symptom of poverty and you have a lot of people in a house so I suppose then that means it's much more difficult to maintain adequate um, cleanliness, there's a lot more physical contact, there's closer living so if someone's infected with something they're much more likely to be infected with it when you have close housing living. It also reflects too, um, there may be poor nutritional status in that household because there's not not enough money for food. Also issues around heating and around good quality water and, and sanitation. So all those sorts
2: of things unfortunately are what are related to infection spread. Add into the mix poor access to medical services and you begin to understand how a child can have a repeated untreated throat infection. Beyond treating the symptoms of overcrowding and poverty and treating the original throat infection, the only other option for people who have had rheumatic fever is preventative antibiotics like penicillin. Well, for
5: young people who've had rheumatic fever, uh, there is a way to prevent progression to RHD and it can be prevented through something we call secondary prophylaxis and that's where someone who's been exposed and it has a risk of developing rheumatic heart disease, goes on a regimen of three to four weekly injections of of a drug called benzathine penicillin G, which we call Bicillin. And you're looking at about 10 years of monthly injections.
2: In case you missed it, that's an injection of Bicillin every three to four weeks for 10 years. But what Professor Sullivan has recently been looking at is the effect rheumatic heart disease has on pregnant women. During pregnancy, the heart has to increase its workload by between 30 and 50 percent. And as you can probably guess, the risks for mum and bub are grave. So
5: women with RHD tend to have inferior outcomes for their babies in terms of a lot more preterm birth. And for women who might be on anticoagulation therapy, there are much higher rates of stillbirth and also neonatal death. So that's the worst types of outcomes. And it particularly can affect um, their heart. So they may also have, um, during pregnancy, heart failure. And that may restrict their ability to do things and uh, result in hospitalizations.
2: The research into rheumatic heart disease and pregnancy is the first in Australia and data analysis is ongoing. Professor Sullivan says preliminary findings suggest that women have issues accessing culturally appropriate antenatal care.
5: So we had a study where where we followed women's journeys during pregnancy with rheumatic heart disease, and what that showed was for these women who were Aboriginal that um, there was a lot of structural issues. There seemed to be a lot of... uh, They perceived racism in the way that they were treated... There was um, a lot of issues around just really basic things. You know, appointment scheduling, being able to physically get to appointments, coming from rural remote settings and being able to get to the hospital, organising their medication... So lots of things which really relate to health literacy around how you navigate the system successfully to get the health outcomes you need.
2: However, Professor Sullivan does point out that there is a silver lining. Despite all these complications, birth outcomes are generally good because we do have a robust health system.
5: In Australia, we're very lucky because we have a really good health system in terms of that it's a safe place to give birth. So even when you have complicated chronic diseases like rheumatic heart disease,
2: our outcomes on the whole are good. As this research is ongoing, we'll keep you updated on the results as they are published. You're listening to Think Health. Hello if you're listening live on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. terms refugee and asylum seeker are often used interchangeably in conversation, but there is an important distinction between the two. A refugee is someone who has fled his or her own country and has been given refugee status by either the United Nations or a third-party country like Australia. An asylum seeker is also someone who has fled their own country, but is yet to have their claim for protection assessed. Why the lesson in definitions? Well, the difference between the two groups has enormous implications for their mental health. Sarah Shishiga is a PhD student at the University of Technology, Sydney. Sarah spoke to Nina Koppel about the health concerns of refugee and asylum seeker women.
3: Some uh, refugees in this study mentioned that they experienced their um, being in the new society as a dropping from the moon to the earth for them. So you can see that it's a biggest stress for them. I have an example for culture shock in this area that they were concerned about the extent of changes, for example, their children's behavior, that uh, the children in the new society were willing to assimilate themselves with the new culture and this regard their traditional values and beliefs and the parents and in particular the women were very very concerned about this and it could affect their mental health negatively. Another uh, category that I mentioned in my recent publication was social factors for example having a secure job or lack of for example. Convenient and affordable housing, it was very important issues that refugee women struggling with. Why are these things extra burdens for women? It's, it's my belief that maybe women are more social and they like to share their experiences and they like to talk. So it was uh, more important for them when they are in a new environment. They didn't have any or any close friend to share their experiences. And also their, most of them, their language was not that competent to share their experiences with other people from other languages. How do we help women get through this? Have you identified any ways that we can work through these problems Problems. Actually, in this study, I found some strategies that this population tried to employ to reduce their stresses or integrate to the uh, new environment. One of them was to, for example, uh, seeking support from community, ethnic communities. Ethnic community can help this population to, you know, increase their empowerment and you know to feel more confidence and to share and provide them with the um, opportunity to share their experiences with other people from their country of origin and I believe that ethnic communities can help refugee women to maintain their health condition
1: and so something you mentioned before was the idea of psychological health how important is psychological health as opposed to just the physical physical health concerns for these this population
3: Their role as women in a family is more obvious and apparent when they are in a new environment and they have to support their family members. So if they feel depressed or they feel down in terms of their mental condition, maybe they cannot support their family and also they may suffer from some physical problems as well. So what kind of research
1: would you still want yep. to do or what questions do you think we still need to ask?
3: In my next project I'm working on asylum seeker women and I'm doing a research on asylum seekers because I believe that asylum seekers living in an insecure residency and maybe their problems are more than refugee women. Why is that? What's the distinction? Uh, Refugee women, actually, refugee has a uh, definition. Refugee refers to people who uh, their refuge or their asylum application has been accepted, and they are settled in the recipient country, for example, in Australia. But asylum seekers are the people who are waiting for uh, a response to their asylum application. And they are not sure that they will be settled in Australia, for example, in my project, or they will be deported to their country of origin. So as you can see that it's very big stress for them that may influence their health condition, Psychologically and physically.
1: Is there any research already in this area on what kind of psychological impact waiting for refugee status, for asylum seeker status?
3: For, yeah. For asylum seeker, actually, I'm working on Iranian uh, asylum seeker women, sorry, and I had a review on literature, and I know that there is no published and documented, you know, evidence about this population. Actually, about other population, maybe about African women, there are some publications and some studies on them about refugee African women, but about asylum seekers, I didn't find much, you know, knowledge or much publications about this population
1: obviously you've been speaking to people in the situation. Do you have any stories that might help people understand what these women or these, these people are going through?
3: One thing that I can say in this stage is that all participants in this situation, they all complain of their insecure residency and they are very concerned about not having a visa and not having a stable condition. And what I found from this population in this stage that they are very concerned about their condition, their children's condition, their education, that all of them are affected by their insecure residency condition in Australia and they wish to have a visa to be settled in Australia.
1: In terms of helping them with their health, is there a solution we can offer now, you know, psychological support and health assistance or is it is it simply the matter of getting them a visa that would be the thing that would help them relieve that burden on their minds
3: yeah actually there are some things in, in healthcare services for example as you mentioned psychological support and counselling session that they uh, use but I still believe that when we have ongoing issues application of these supports cannot help them that much because they said that they, they are using the uh, services, for example, the counselling services, psychological services, but they are still suffering from mental issues.
2: Sarah Shishiga,
3: PhD student in the
2: Faculty of Health at UTS, speaking with Nina Kopal.
0: You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
2: Type ultrasound into Google and you're likely to get the blurry black and white pictures we have come to associate with pregnancy ultrasounds. But ultrasound is more than just for pregnancy. Increasingly, ultrasounds are being used by a variety of clinicians, from physiotherapists to emergency department doctors. The problem is that many clinicians who use ultrasound to supplement their professional opinion may have the education to read the ultrasound picture, but not the registration. Annie Gibbons is the CEO of the Australasian Institute of Ultrasound. She spoke to Jake Morecambe about the push for dual registration
4: yeah my only experience I suppose with ultrasound was going there as a as a mum and so and obviously my patients in nursing would go off for ultrasounds but I didn't have a thorough understanding the way I do now so for example, I would have had the common belief that you just go to ultrasound to see the baby's picture whereas it's actually a diagnostic medical tool it's there to actually assess the baby's health in an extensive way not just to give you a pretty picture to put on your fridge or to pop up on Facebook so so I suppose the medical side of it is, is a lot different than what the current consumer would actually think and also the range and diversity of uses that ultrasound is now used for. So it's not just obstetric. There's vascular, musculoskeletal, deep. Uh, general cardiac ultrasound. It's used to scan pretty much every part of the body and it's an amazing uh, diagnostic tool that more and more doctors are taking up. So for example in my current role uh, we have doctors from all over Australasia using it from radiologists, obstetricians to emergency doctors and, and phlebologists and surgeons. So the, the use of ultrasound is is increasing by a diverse range.
0: Mm. When you just hear ultrasound, I think the first thing that you go to is just you you have an ultrasound during the term of pregnancy, Mm -hmm. but it goes outside the realm of just that practice, does it?
4: Absolutely. So for example, uh, a patient might be having a leaky heart valve or something. They can have an ultrasound, they have an echocardiograph and actually have a little look at all the chambers of the heart and what's happening there. They might have some vascular problems and so their veins will get scanned Whether in all parts of their body. they can, You can have musculoskeletal injuries, so tears in, in joints and, and, and tissues. And so physiotherapists and um, sports physicians, They will be actually um, scanning um, knees and ankles and and hips uh, all over the place. They can even scan an eye and um, and look underneath the lid and find what's happening. So it is quite amazing that depending on the field uh, that the practitioner is working in, there's basically an ultrasound course available for them.
0: And to go now to the Australasian Institute of Ultrasound, what is it that you do?
4: So we're the biggest provider of ultrasound education across Australasia and so we have a large training uh, faculty and we have a a large training facility in the Gold Coast. So we're based in the Gold Coast. We We provide training to over 850
0: students every year. So what is involved in the training? What are you prepping them for? It
4: depends on what what their their need is. So if they're in an emergency department, for example, they might they don't they don't want to do a comprehensive scan with a very you know large modern machine, high end machine, uh, with comprehensive reports. They actually want to scan someone's heart or scan someone's uh, lungs and actually see do are they bleeding? Do they need surgery? What's my uh, I'm using it as a diagnostic tool at the point of care, whereas other doctors, um, doctors will actually be doing a comprehensive scan or a sonographer, for example. They do two years postgraduate qualification and they'll do a comprehensive scan, um, which then requires a full report uh, signed off by the radiologist or obstetrician, and so it depends on what that medical practitioner uh, is actually using it for, to what course they then enrol in.
0: It, it, it was it kind of an instance of there would be a hospital or a medical setting that would have this equipment, but they don't they didn't really know why they had it or like what it could then be used for.
4: No, they knew what it could be used for, but it's one of those things that it actually is really challenging to learn those skills to know how to how to scan and so you buy this equipment but you actually don't know how to use it it's like getting a phone and not knowing what all the buttons are Mm. you know and so it's it's probably offensive to the professionals that you think oh well I can just do a short little course and then wave it wave the ultrasound you know transducer over and I can see everything you actually can't you're then looking at images in a very different way and um, and so being able to one being able to image and then two be able to be confident enough to view that image and then diagnose off it is a real skill and so it was more that the machines were getting sold and we needed to make sure that people who were then going to use them did so in a professional manner. That also then led, I was on the diagnostic imaging board for the Department of Health and so we were championing uh, to actually define that those certificates in uh, point of care ultrasound were then the minimum standard of um of user qualification Mm. and that's still getting pushed through now that at the moment doctors can just scan without um, qualification so can physios so can vets so can anybody however as a diagnostic tool we would like to see that there is a minimum standard recognised by the government and hopefully that's still to come.
0: When is this push how, how far in the future are you seeing this being installed?
4: Oh, it depends how quickly the the health department respond to that, that need. I'd say, you know, hopefully within the next year or two, we've been campaigning for that for a good three to four years now. There's obviously resistance from that and it's a complex issue. So what I mean by that is we have a registration body called ARPRA and so whether you're a a doctor or a nurse or a physiotherapist for example they're all nationally registered whereas ultrasound sonographers are not registered they're not nationally registered and so it's sort of a it's a a diagnostic imaging tool and skill set but it actually doesn't come under its own profession that is registered so if you then define the scope that those that skill set or qualification needs to be sort of um, recognized by a license or a board we, what we have now though is we have a variety of people who are already registered by boards so the nurses are already registered the physios the radiographers um, doctors nurses so do they need then dual registration which then becomes financial and it becomes complex to manage. So there's that whole issue as well. Then there's also the financial and billing aspect that if you bill for an ultrasound scan, if you're the doctor billing for that, should you um, be able to bill the same rate as someone who's doing a comprehensive scan as opposed to just doing a more focused, um, specific scan. And so th- there's complex issues of finance, uh, government regulations, politics, licensing. And so hopefully, you know, my my side of it has been purely just from an educational perspective that obviously if someone's using something which then has a um, diagnostic response to it, I would like to see that a minimum standard of, of quality and um, expectation would be there and that's defining its scope and putting it into a qualification.
2: That's Jake Morecambe speaking to Annie Gibbons, CEO of the Australasian Institute of Ultrasound. It's an excerpt taken from another 2SER show, The Chat. If you want to hear more from that interview, visit 2ser.com forward slash The Chat. If you would like to find out more about anything you heard today, visit 2scr.com forward slash thinkhealth. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. And if today's program has raised any concerns, go and see your GP. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Thanks for your company.